0: If you're here today, um, and you were not here last Sunday, you may not realize that today is the second of a two-part series, so I will strongly encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, to go check that out on Vimeo or YouTube, and listen to that, because they're really designed to be joined together. I'm not sure that you will do that, but I'll encourage you to do that, I think it'll help bring... More context to the message, but a brief review. Uh, Last week, in talking about the in this series, we're talking about all of the cultural shifts that we have happening in our world, and those seem to be taking place so quickly and abruptly uh, that each day you turn turn on the news or open your app and you see something new, and you think, "My goodness, are we moving this fast?" But God's word doesn't. Change It is immovable. Jesus said that God's words would stand forever. It's going to be his words that will judge us ultimately, and and of course, these words do not shift. When it comes to the topic of sex, we made a distinction last week between sex, which God designed as a good thing, and sexual immorality, which is anything outside the boundary. And God's boundary, when it comes to that subject, uh, is very simple. It's just one. It's marriage. And marriage, as God defined it uh, in his word, is very simple. One man and one woman for one lifetime. That's what he said in Genesis 2. That's what Jesus quoted in Matthew 19. Now, these things are simple. The world makes it complex. The world uh, attempts to redefine the boundaries. And, of course, we know that that comes from the enemy. We said that sexual immorality is anything outside of the boundary, which makes it really easy for us to understand what sexual immorality is. It can be pornography, it can be prostitution, In uh, our world only fans, is, uh, if you don't know what that is, please don't look it up, but, but it, it's that, you know, that's not a new thing. That's the, the world's immorality. That's always been there, it's just more available right here. Uh, It's things like pornography and homosexuality and pedophilia, and all of the sins that are sexual sins are really just sexual immorality. There's one word for it in the Greek, it's the word pornea. And it's an umbrella term that just means anything outside of the boundary. And that makes it very simple for us to understand. God has one consistent command when it comes to sexual immorality and that the Bible's very clear on it. There's one reaction and one, only one appropriate reaction when it comes to anything outside the boundary and that's this, flee, run like Joseph did from Mrs. Potiphar. Don't, ha- don't see how close you can get to it, don't toy with it, don't think about it, don't just uh, see how close to the boundary you can get, flee from sexual sin. That's his consistent command to the people of Israel, to the people of the church. And so today, we're going to talk about how we flee, what we do when we cross the boundary, and how we can help Other people as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is where we ended last week. And I want to, in the short amount of time that I have left, I want to hit this point pretty hard. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we see uh, God's exit. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 the scripture there uh, tells us something about how to deal with temptation. We're in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. Beautiful promise right here in the midst of temptation. And he will not let You be tempted beyond your ability. And that's a comforting promise. Not only is God faithful, but he's looking over you. And he will not let you venture into a sin or a temptation that's mightier than your ability to withstand. That's comforting. But with the temptation, the third promise, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is is supremely comforting. So right here in 1 Corinthians 10, we see God's faithfulness, that he's faithful to us, God's protection, that he's looking out over us, and that God doesn't want us to fail. God isn't the all-seeing eye just watching every move you make and just waiting for the moment, well, ha, you messed up. To hell you go. That is not the attitude of your father, according to 1 Corinthians 10. He's faithful. He loves you. He wants to protect you from sin. He wants to keep you from sin. And he, every single time you are tempted, he provides a way out. It's really important that we understand this point. Here's the thing about exits. Uh, when it comes to temptation, they're always... Available, but you don't always notice them. Uh, there are in this room six exits. Hey, you know that, you kind of think through it. If I ask you how many exits you got, oh, okay, I think there's this many. It's not too hard to figure out, but you don't really think of it that way. Could we bring the lights down for just a minute? I, I, I don't have my gas can with me, I can't fill the room with smoke, but if, if you could uh, just imagine that we're going to get the room dark, and we're going to leave the projectors on. But if this room, God forbid, were to fill with smoke and fire, it's only then that the exits become more apparent. There's two over here and four at the back. And when the room gets its darkest, those signs, which are always lit and run on battery backup, are there for a reason. So that the time when you and I need them most, we can clearly see the exit. That's the kind of God that we serve. Every time you're tempted, you may think it's impossible Every time you come into uh, face-to-face with whatever your kryptonite is as a sin, you need to know that God's already provided the exit. Even in your darkest moments, and maybe even especially in your darkest moments, the exits begin to appear more clearly. And those exits are put there by God, and they're put there for you. We're told in Scripture, every temptation has an exit. Whether it's pornography, or fornication, or adultery, or pedophilia, pedophilia or LGBTQ, any of that. All of it's sexual sin, but here's the thing. God always, always provides an exit. And we think about how Jesus handled temptation. Of course, he was the son of God, but he was tempted. The scripture says just like we are. Well, how did he resist sin? How did he look for the exit? The good news is Matthew chapter 4 tells us. Now, the lights are off, so I'm going to I'm going to usually have to trust me on this one, but you can look it up and fact-check me later. In Matthew chapter 4, the scripture tells us that Jesus resisted temptation by doing three different things. Number one, he resisted the devil. He said, get behind me, Satan. He addressed to me, he said, you, are, you don't have in mind the things of God. He resists, that's an important point. We need to resist the devil. James, the brother of Jesus said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So he resisted, first of all. Number two, he answered lies with truth. Okay, In the temptation of Jesus, again and again and again, you see Jesus saying, It is written. It is written. Now, the funny thing is, Jesus wrote, (laughs) Jesus inspired the scriptures when they were written. He knew the scriptures, but what he called Satan back to, to what was written. What never changes. And third, he had some help. And it says, after the devil left him, after he tempted him three times... That angels came and attended him. I always imagine Jesus resisting temptation alone. And that's true for part of it. But you need to know, just as with Jesus, that God's got some help for you. God wants to help you. And so, in Hebrews 3, we're told as the church to encourage one another daily, today, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Beautiful thing. He resisted Satan. He answered the lies with the truth. And he didn't do it all by himself. He had some help. So resisting temptation, that's a really important part. Looking for the exit is a huge part of our sanctification. Every time someone is baptized and Rob or Raymond are back there, they will pray with that person and they will say something to this effect. Now today's a beautiful day. But Satan's angry. God's happy, but Satan's angry. And he's going to be after you. And he's going to put all sorts of obstacles and temptations in your way. And we, as your church family, are here to help you through that process. I love that tradition. That's a beautiful thing. Because it's reminding these very new Christians that they're going to face some challenges. They need to be always looking for the exit. All right, we can bring the lights up. So now I want to ask you this. The question that's on the hearts of people in the pews is this. Yeah, but what if I didn't take the exit? What if I was tempted, I saw the exit, I knew what Scripture said, I knew what the church people said, and I didn't take the exit? That's what I want to know. And that's the good news from John chapter 8. For those of you who didn't take the exit... For those of you who've crossed the boundaries, maybe for those of you who are watching or who are here, who are living on the other side of the boundaries, not in defiance to the preacher, in defiance of God Almighty. What is my response? What now? John chapter 8 is where you want to go. If you didn't take the exit, if you've not only been tempted with sexual sin, but you've fallen to sexual sin if you are experiencing the ramifications of that physically and emotionally and spiritually, which sexual sin affects us in all of those areas, there's a reason that there is an account in John chapter 8. And I really hope that you will turn there for the remainder of the message. John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. The scripture is so clear And it's such a beautiful act of Jesus. Now, as soon as I mention it, you'll think I know the story. But I want to call you back with open ears and an open heart to how Jesus dealt with sexual sin. John chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. There's a whole story that starts in verse 1, but I don't have time to give it all this morning. So Jesus is here in the midst of this woman. She's been caught in adultery. She's been brought by the teachers and the Pharisees. They have set a trap for Jesus. They have used her as human bait. Because no matter what he answers, they feel like they've got him. And a human's life, and more importantly, a woman's heart and soul hangs in the balance. I can't imagine a tougher test and a tougher trial or our wonderful teacher, Jesus. But he handles it masterfully. In this crowd of men, this woman, scantily clad perhaps, embarrassed and ashamed and guilty, comes into the presence of Jesus and religious leaders. And the religious leaders say, the law says to stoner, And that's exactly right. That's exactly what the law said. To be perfectly just, the woman and the man who is mysteriously absent was worthy of death, worthy of stoning. They were exactly right on that matter. The Romans said you couldn't kill a person, that that was the only entity that could do that was the Roman government. So if Jesus agreed with the law, they would go to Caesar and say, Jesus is subverting your laws. And if uh, Jesus said, no, no, we should show her mercy, don't stone her, guys, don't, don't throw those rocks. If Jesus had said that, he wouldn't have been fulfilling the law, and they would, they would have proclaimed Jesus to be a heretic. So what do you Say And Jesus says nothing. And he stoops on the ground and he writes something known only by Jesus and maybe the woman on the ground. They continue to question him and so he pushes back. And he says this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. He kneels again on the ground. He continues writing. And the teachers understand that Jesus will not be trapped. And the older ones first, because they're wiser and smarter. And the younger ones last, as they release the death grip on their stone. Drop the rock. And I'm imagining this circle of rocks with Jesus and this woman in the middle. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now, now the world would love it if we stopped right there. But Jesus, as the perfect, the perfect representation of truth, justice, and grace, says, Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Jesus is the only salvation for this woman. He is the only one who can fulfill the law's requirements for a human life to be sacrificed for sin. He's the only one who can and will do that. She can't do that. Even if they stoned her, it doesn't pay the price for her sin. The law couldn't do that. The law could just condemn. That's the only thing the law could do. But only Jesus could offer this woman salvation. Jesus does something that is so profound, it wrecks me, because it's the message that our culture needs to hear. And it's this. Jesus neither hates this woman, nor does he affirm her sin. See, we live in a culture right now that's presented us with this terrible lie from the enemy, and that's this. You either accept me and accept and affirm my sin, or you hate me. And Jesus turns that on its head. And says, I do not hate you, I love you, and I will not affirm your sin. Jesus didn't say her adultery was okay. Jesus didn't look over that. Jesus didn't affirm that. Jesus mercifully held back condemnation when he had every right to condemn her. He loves the woman and does not affirm her sin. Jesus shows both parts in perfect measure of mercy and also repentance. He shows her mercy. He seeks her repentance. And in my view, this is not only the way that Jesus responded. It's in there for a model for us. As the church, to be, to to seek repentance and to show mercy. Because here's the thing with sexual sin, you can't undo it. As much as you would like to, you can't undo it. Last week, with the baptism, we were in the back. I heard Gideon, I believe it was Gideon Woodard, up here praying. And right before he prayed, he said, Toby has laid on us some heavy things today. And I agree with that 100%. But here's the good news of the gospel. The yoke of Jesus is easy. The burden that he asks us to carry is light. He wants to free us from our sin. And that's precisely why he cannot nor will he never affirm anyone in their sin. If Jesus had Facebook, when he saw two men getting married, he wouldn't like that. He wouldn't affirm that. He loves those two men, but he will not affirm their sin. Neither do I condemn you as a, such a beautiful act of mercy. Go now and leave your life of sin is a wonderful, beautifully bright exit sign for the woman. Leave this. God doesn't want you here, nor do I desire that you stay here. And so this morning, if you're struggling with sexual sin, I want you to know a couple things. Number one, Jesus died for your sin. Just as we heard this morning about the Lord's Supper, he died for your sin. Now, Jesus offers you the same thing that he offered the woman caught in adultery. Mercy. Neither do I condemn you if you will repent. If you'll agree with God that it's sin if you agree with God that it's not right, God is when you repent, God is willing and ready with open arms to show you mercy and grace. That is what the gospel is all about. And as the church, we enter into a foolish arena to try to choose one or the other. we're going to be the church that pounds justice we're going to be the church that condemns and protests and and shouts as loud as we can about sin and shows no mercy offers no hope there's some churches that say we're going to accept everyone and all we have to do is love them that's it that's we just we affirm you we affirm your choices we affirm your lifestyle we we're okay with that we we don't have to change i don't we don't like the word repentance maybe between these two extremes there's a better biblical answer and i think it's found in john chapter 8 verses 10 and 11 that we should carry this attitude of, of seeking repentance and showing mercy at the same time, and I believe that 's what the hope of the gospel, the people of the church are to be about all right in the remaining short, short amount of time I have, I want to give you four four things that you can do because for so many of you it 's not that you 're struggling. It's someone in your family is struggling. It's, it's a friend that you've grown up with. It's a, it's, a, it's a best friend from high school that you're still connected with. It, it's, it's someone that you know and that you care about. And you don't know how to walk this line when it comes to sexual immorality. So let me give you these practical four steps and then we will be finished. When it comes to thinking about how we respond... Number one, lead them to Jesus, which is something you would expect the preacher to say, but you don't know how many people and how much time and how many books have been written on, and it's all based on the idea that we're the Savior. If I just build a relationship, if I just do enough good things, I have this person in my home and I do these nice things and I treat him real nice, then I can save him. And that, that is so far from true. What a person needs in sin is not someone standing on the edge. If they're drowning in water, they don't need them standing on the edge of the pool saying, we love you. We think you're great. Just keep swimming. If they're drowning, they need a rope. They need a life preserver. So please don't take this one lightly. Mike mentioned John 3.16. I want to mention to you John 3.17, and it's this. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You're not going to save anybody. You can't even save yourself. Only Jesus can do that. And if you believe that... If this room were filled with fire and smoke, God forbid, and you saw, you found the exit, I hope you would not just waste it on yourself, but I hope you would call, Come here! This way! The exit's over here! If you love people, you'd lead them to the exit. You'd lead them to Jesus. And this is an important thing to remember, and it's still in John chapter 3, and it's this. And this is a hard one, so get ready for it, okay? In John three nineteen, John writes these words. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. And this should break your heart. And if it hasn't yet, it will. You can lead people to Jesus, and you should. You should know that people rejected Jesus in Jesus' day, and they reject Jesus to their peril today. We don't give up on them, but sometimes when you're saying, The exit's over here, they're in a smoky, dark room going, Ah! <coughs> We don't don't need any of that religious junk. (coughs) Because men love darkness rather than light. You try to lead a person to Jesus and they reject it. Don't give up on them. But know that Jesus leaves that choice... In their hands. Number two. Speak the truth. In love. Compromising what's true. Is the most unloving thing you can do. It really is. If you affirm someone in their sin. If you get an invitation. To a same sex wedding, and you say, well, I need, to, I need to be a part of that, I need to celebrate that, you're misleading them, you're not loving them, you're celebrating that which God hates, not that specific sin, but all sin, we, we never celebrate that which God hates, and that'll break your heart, because there's some people you're close to. And that will hurt the relationship because it's relational hostage-taking is what it is. What's happening in the world right now is you affirm me or you will never see me again. You affirm me or lose my number. You affirm me or block, block, block. And you need to know that's not from them. That's the enemy working through their voice. Please, please continue to speak the truth in love. I do not hate you, but I will not affirm your sin. I'm I'm not going to rewrite God's word to suit your ways. You see, you can love someone and still hate their sin. Jesus did. God does. That's the whole point. He loves us and he loves us enough to never affirm our sin. Number three, instead of celebrating sin, we should celebrate repentance. Repentance. When we rejoice at wrongdoing, that is unloving. What the Bible calls us to do is to celebrate repentance. To celebrate when a sinner repents. There's an old youth group song. I don't even know if they sing it anymore, but it, it, there's a single line in it, It's so powerful, and it's... I say to you, I say to you, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then ninety-nine, ninety-nine righteous persons who need no penitence. In Luke 15, the doctor records this from Jesus I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels, of the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. I love that picture. And here's a young man, and he's tempted to look at websites that he shouldn't look at. And he weighs it. And he pushes back. And he shuts off the computer. And he walks out of the room. And somewhere in the spiritual realm, there's angels going, yeah! Yes! Yes! They are all for us. They love it when we repent. When a person's baptized into Christ, and we've been having a lot of them lately, there's rejoicing of the angels in heaven because the gospel wins. I love this tradition that you all have started. I don't know where or who or how. But after Rob and Raymond are praying with the new Christian, they come out and they tell him, you're going to be hugged so much it hurts today. And as they walk down that ramp, are, so watch this happen for Kevin this last Wednesday. And there was a whole crowd of teenagers and adults and parents too, waiting to welcome him with open arms to the church, to the family of God. Don't you know that the same thing is happening in heaven That God loves repentance. God loves seeing a sinner turn. And we should too. And by the way, I hope you continue that wonderful tradition. Because that's what church is all about. That we celebrate repentance. We don't celebrate sin. And number four. maybe you persevere patiently. Please, please. Don't give up. Love, the first attribute of love in First Corinthians 13 is this. Love is patient. Most of us wouldn't be here if someone had given up on us. Very few people come to repentance the first time. So may we not give up on people, on souls... I don't care what the sin is, sexual sin or otherwise, may we keep praying for them, may we keep loving them, may we keep sharing the hope that we have in Jesus, and may we keep leading them gently but persistently to Jesus. I hope these things have been helpful to you because these cultural issues are so challenging. But may we do these four things consistently, lead them to Jesus, speak the truth in love, celebrate repentance, and persevere patiently. If you're sitting in the pew this morning and you're real mad at me, I'm just the messenger, guys. Take it up with the author. (laughs) If you're sitting here mad this morning, let me ask you to check what are you mad about? Because I said something untrue? Because I said something unloving? It would be so much easier to be a preacher who went along with the stream of culture. But it would be the least loving thing I could do. So cross-check me with the word. And if you're still mad... I gently invite you this morning to come to the feet of Jesus who deals with our sin perfectly in in a perfect measure of righteousness, mercy, and love. And he wants to deal with your sin in the same way. He doesn't want you to die in your sin. He doesn't want you to burn in eternity. That's precisely why he came, to love you. That is why they call him Savior. This morning, if you need to respond to that invitation, or if you have a person who has chosen to follow Jesus, but you've got stuck in some sin, you've been entangled, as the scripture says, in some sins that are weighing you down, our shepherds would like to pray with you, we'd like to lead you to Christ, if you're ready to be baptized into his name. Uh, You can do that this morning. Whatever needs you might have, uh, the opportunity to respond is now yours. We're going to sing a song. Just head to the back if you need to respond in a public way. We'd be honored to help you.